Hey, good morning, everyone. Welcome. It's Friday. This is Just Human number 221. I am somewhat awake and kind of well-rested, and we have a lot of topics to get to. It's been an exciting week, and I mean, I think y'all know we're definitely going to talk about the speaker battle, but we're also going to talk about, um, as I hit my mic, uh, like a real pro, uh, we're also going to talk about a couple things that have happened in Trump's various cases and the start of SBF's trial. Um, I think that SBF's trial is, I mean, it seems to me anyway, like it's kind of getting drowned out uh, in all the other news that's that's going on, which is understandable. Um, but I want to take a look at it and I have the, um, I, I don't have the transcript of the opening statements, but inner city press did a fantastic job threading the opening statements in the trial. So I want to go through that and read what he has in his thread. Shout out to inner city press, Matthew Russell. He's awesome. And, uh, a real gumshoe journalist. He's a rare breed. And uh, I want to read his stuff and then go over some of the the things that have happened in the first three days of well two two days of SBF's trial, and then we'll see what happens. That may be the whole show, or I may may have time for a little something else. So uh, before we get started, good morning everybody. Glad you're here. Thank you for being here. If you are, if you like the show and enjoy it, please hit the thumbs up over there on Rumble. Give it a share. That helps me out a lot. Um, we have noticed as we talked about, um, well, we kind of touched on this on Defected and Power Hour. Rumble's view numbers are a little bit weird, and it's hitting the like button and commenting really lets us know. Like we we consider that to be a pretty good gauge of how much people like the show is whether or not they hit the thumbs up um, and leave a comment. So. If you do like it, please do that. Um, I was concerned a little bit that Pilled wasn't working for me, but I think it's working now. I think it's just delay, the delay over there is a little bit longer than it is on Rumble before it picks up the stream. All right. And if you really like the show and you want to do something to support it, then you can go over to Ko-Fi or Coffee. I can't help but think of it as Ko-Fi. K-O dash fi it seems like ko-fi to me like hi-fi you know uh but i think it's supposed to be coffee if you would like to buy me a coffee which i'm addicted to and need um i absolutely run on caffeine you can go to ko-fi.com slash just human another way you can support the show is bensonhoneyfarms.com in the description of the show there is a uh a link where is my video no, that's not it. Where is it? There we go. Uh, in the description of the show um, and on my link tree, there's a referral link for Benson Honey Farms. You can go there and get yourself some some raw honey, not pasteurized, not superheated, none of those things, just delicious raw honey. And uh, man, I love their honey. It is so good. I put it in my coffee every day. There is also a referral link in the description of the video and on my link tree for bootleg products where you can get some delicious salsa, or chili or seasonings. I do love their seasonings and their salsa, but I am told that their chili is actually their best selling product and it's getting to be that time of year. So, yeah, if you're interested, go over to uh, the referral link either in my link tree or in the description of the show. Take a look around and if you make a purchase over there, they kick a few dollars my way. 
I do have a merch store over at redwhiteandbourbon45.com. You can find the link for it in the description or on my link tree. And there's a few things, items. There's a few items there, such as program yourself shirts and understanding is better than reacting, that kind of thing, or greater than reacting. But the best product there by far is the coffee mug, of course. And I love the coffee mug. Man, I need some more coffee. <laughs> so, and um, finally, if you're interested in a podcast version of the show and the occasional article, justhuman.substack.com. It's free. Everything's on there is free. Everything I do is free. Um, sign up over there. I send, I don't do too much content over there. Not a whole lot. I'm not going to berate your email box with tons of emails at all. But it is where I do the podcast from. And uh, if you're interested in a podcast version of this show, it's available typically one to three hours after this show is over. It's uploaded. You can connect it to whatever your favorite podcast app is, or you can listen uh, to the, the audio version via the Substack app. You don't got to pay for it, but a uh, paid subscription to Substack is the number one way to support the show. All right, all of that stuff out of the way. And forgive me for leading the show off with self-promotion, but this is a user-supported show. So uh, sometimes you got to do that. All right, let's talk about speaker battle. We talked about it quite a bit on the Devolution Power Hour on Wednesday night, which was really good. And if you're interested, we had a, a lengthy discussion on it then, and uh, I really enjoyed it. Um I have a few more things to say about it that I didn't say then and have developed since then. Uh, one, McCarthy came out and said that he did not ask Trump to save him. And I just find it, I find it interesting that, and I'm not trying to defend McCarthy here. I'm just trying to give a perspective and just add to the perspective that we're, we're all have. Cause I feel like right side media very much sticks to a narrow perspective and portrayal of events, uh, especially having to do with Congress. So I just want to add to that perspective that we're told that Kevin McCarthy is this uniparty swamp creature, and he definitely has come to represent that in the the mind of people on the right. But he didn't make a deal with Democrats to save him, and he also didn't call on Trump to save him when Trump's the guy who made him speaker. And I just find it really interesting that it doesn't seem like McCarthy actually made moves to save himself. That's what it seems like to me, that McCarthy just, the motion came, or Gates threatened it, McCarthy said bring it, and then McCarthy let Republicans decide what they were going to do, and only eight Republicans voted to kick him out, and it was the Democrats who unified to remove him. And I said on the on the on Devolution Power Hour, the establishment GOP, they hate this. They hate that any Republicans joined with Democrats to get rid of their speaker. It's it it's offensive to them. And I think law a little bit lost in uh their reaction. Like I think some of the people like Newt Gingrich and Mark Levin. I think they do have some good points about the strategy here. Like 
I think it's perfectly fair to raise the point that, okay, Matt Gates, now that you've gotten rid of our speaker, what is your plan now? What's going to happen now? What are the house rules going to be? Uh, are we going to get a better or worse speaker? You know, like it's totally, totally fine to raise to rate, to bring that stuff up and to question the strategy here and what the long-term plan is. Um, because Gates hasn't particularly like, he hasn't really articulated that, that I have heard. Um, it's really been a focus on, we got to get rid of McCarthy. That's been the overall message, which he has accomplished. Okay. So now what? And I think lost in Levin and New Gingrich and a bunch of other people who are reacting to Kevin McCarthy's removal are those fair points. It's getting lost in their hyperbole and their emotional language. And they're, they're just, they're upset because this isn't the, I think they're upset mostly because this isn't how Washington is supposed to work in their mind. It goes against the decorum. It goes against the, uh, the way things are supposed to be. I think it's very much that it's like a, um, they have a belief about the way Washington is supposed to work and they, it, does, it doesn't factor into them that there could be a better way for Washington to work um, and that it's okay to say, all right, you know what, we're going to, we're going to pull the plug on this thing and we're going to hit the reset button or we're going to let the shutdown happen or we're going to get rid of our speaker because we think we can do better or because the speaker lied to us. And even if we can't do better, he still lied to us and there has to be consequences to lying to us. Right. So I think that to some degree they're trying to be, there's a, there's an element where they're advocating for a pragmatism and uh, which is good, but they're, I think mostly they're just upset because this breaks the norm in DC, which is good. And speaking of breaking norms, um, you guys remember Ro Khanna? We've talked about him before. He came up, he's a Democrat from California, and he came up um, back when the Twitter files first started being published. I believe it was with the Twitter files. Ro Khanna was the only Democrat to say that there are, they had to raise concerns about the Twitter files and talk about the violations of the First Amendment. And I'm pretty sure it was Twitter files. But he he advocated for the First Amendment and he wrote that he sent this letter about it. It came out, oh, I know what it was. Now that I'm talking about remembering it. The Twitter files revealed that Ro Khanna was the only Democrat to send a letter to either Twitter or he sent it to the FBI asking about violations of the first amendment as far as the government instructing Twitter on censoring conservatives. He was the only Democrat who was like, I think this violates the first amendment. We need to look into this. Um, he stood out and I, I think it was Schellenberger maybe who uncovered that or Matt Taibbi found this message. Um, well, Ro Khanna got up and uh, said this, this is from, I want to see if it gave the date. I'm not sure if it was yesterday. It might have been yesterday or a couple days ago. Oh, yeah. I should probably unmute the tab. Let me make sure you guys are can hear this. Okay, here we go.
Nope, y'all can't hear it. Okay, hold up. Yep, that setting got changed. Okay, now you're going to be able to hear it. American people are frustrated and exhausted with the corruption and role of big money in the halls of Congress. That is why I'm introducing a five-point plan. First, ban all PAC and lobbyist money to congressional campaigns. I don't take a dime of it. Second, ban completely stock trading and members of Congress from ever becoming lobbyists, activists like Unusual Whales, Quiver Quantitative, and the leaders at Crew have been mobilizing for this. Third, term limits for members of Congress, fourth, term limits for Supreme Court justices, and fifth, an ethics code for Supreme Court justices. This is common sense. The people demand it. It's time we give them back their government and we reform in Washington. We should have bipartisan support for this five-point plan. Thank you, Madam Speaker. Wow. I absolutely agree with everything he just said. Everything he just said, I, just, I agree with. And so does Matt Gates. And check out this boss move from Matt Gates. He says, okay, let's negotiate. My GOP colleagues want to raise the threshold on the motion to vacate. This is important. This is one of the fallouts from what Matt Gates has accomplished is that now the GOP, there's going to be infighting and there already is. Uh, in fact, one of the representatives, I think it was a guy from Louisiana, he said that there had to be a break. Like everybody had to leave Washington after the speaker uh, vote or after the motion to vacate that it was necessary. He said something like it was necessary for Republicans to go home after McCarthy was removed because there was about to be a fist fight among the Republicans, which is believable when you remember how things went when McCarthy was elected in the first place. Remember those guy, that guy that came over, the representative that came over to Gates acting like he was going to fight him and he had to be physically removed. Um, he wouldn't, if you don't know, it wouldn't be the first time a fist fight happened in Congress. In fact, one man, his name escapes me, but it had to, it was right before the civil war. I believe man, his name is, it starts with an S I think. Uh, he was almost beat to death on the floor of the Senate by by a racist Democrat with a cane. A Southern Democrat. I can't remember the names, but anyway, there's been there has been uh, all out brutal brawls in Congress before, and apparently Charles Sumner. That's it. Thank you, Music and Fiction. I knew it. I knew it started with an S. Sumner. That's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so there have been some brutal fights in the, in the Senate before. So it wouldn't be the first time that fisticuffs happened. Um, Daniel might says Seward. That's familiar too. Charles Sumner. Okay. Now I got to look it up. Now we got to look it up. Now we got to look it up because I can't, I can't, I can't stand it now. Was it Sumner? Yes, it was the Senate. It was in the Senate. Three days earlier, when Senator Charles Sumner, a Massachusetts anti-slavery Republican, addressed the Senate on the explosive issue of whether Kansas should be admitted to the Union as a slave state or a free state. 
In its crime against Kansas speech, Sumner identified two Democratic senators as the principal culprits in this crime, Stephen Douglas of Illinois and Andrew Butler of South Carolina. He characterized Douglas to his face as a noisome, squat, and nameless animal, not a proper model for an American senator. Andrew Butler, who was not present, received a more elaborate treatment, mocking the South Carolina senator's stance as a man of chivalry. The Massachusetts Senator charged him with taking, quote, a mistress who, though ugly to others, is always lovely to him, <laughs> though polluted in the sight of the world, is chaste in his sight. <laughs> the harlot. <laughs> oh, <laughs> the harlot slavery. So the mistress is slavery. Wow, that's actually kind of poetic. He's saying that the mistress that the South Carolina senator is having an affair with is slavery itself. Wow. I like that. All right. Representative Preston Brooks was Butler's South Carolina kinsman. If he had believed Sumner to be a gentleman, he might have challenged him to a duel. Instead, he chose a light cane of the type used to discipline unruly dogs. Shortly after the Senate had adjourned for the day, Brooks entered the old chamber where he found Sumner busily attaching his postal frank to copies of, quote, his, his crime against Kansas speech. Moving quickly, Brooks slammed his metal-topped cane onto the unsuspecting Sumner's head. As Brooks struck again and again, Sumner rose and lurched blindly about the chamber, futilely attempting to protect himself. After a long minute, it ended. Being profusely, uh, bleeding profusely, Sumner was carried away. Brooks walked calmly out of the chamber without being detained by the stunned onlookers. Overnight, both men became heroes in their respective regions. Surviving a House censure resolution, Brooks resigned, was immediately reelected, and then soon thereafter died at age 37. Good riddance. Sumner recovered slowly and returned to the Senate, where he remained for another 18 years. The nation, wow. Dude, think about how racist and awful Southern Democrats were that they had a representative who almost beat another man to death and then resigned over it and then was immediately reelected. They're like, no, we want that guy. <laughs> wow. I like what he said about this. I'm going to read this part again. Mocking the South Carolina senator's stance as a man of chivalry, the Massachusetts senator, Charles Sumner, charged him, that would be Andrew Butler of South Carolina, with taking, quote, a mistress, who, though ugly to others, is always lovely to him though polluted in the sight of the world, is chaste in his sight. I mean, the harlot, slavery. Wow, that is... That's good. All right, I had to go look that up just to be sure. I don't want to spread misinformation. All right, so Gates right here is... The, the boss move here is that Gates says, look, I agree with Ro Khanna on all of this, but my GOP colleagues, they want to raise the threshold in the motion to vacate. How about we change that threshold and then get all this stuff in? He says, if we enact the reforms Rep. Ro Khanna lays out here, how high would you like the motion to vacate threshold to be? Because I'll basically give you whatever you want on the motion to vacate for this stuff right here. Um, that's awesome. And that's a boss move from Matt Gates, And it totally breaks the uniparty. It totally breaks the unipar that he's doing this. Okay, so Jim Jordan. 
we got to talk about Jim Jordan right here because I think um, there's something we can glean from this. So if you take yourself back to Godspeed 7, thank you very much for the rant. I appreciate that. Thank you very much. I really do. Thank you. Um, okay, so take your mind back to the first speaker battle uh, in January. A lot of people wanted it to be Rep. Jordan. And Jordan said no. Jordan said no. I don't want to be speaker. I want to be in the over the oversight committee. I want to chair the judiciary. I have work to do. And I remember that I and others made the case that look, we don't want to put Jordan as speaker because he's so good at the weaponization thing. He's so good on judiciary. We want Jordan to stay where he's at and to continue doing the work that he's been doing for years as far as uncovering corruption and criminality within our agencies and our bureaus and departments and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? Jim Jordan seemed best place where he was, especially considering that Republicans now had control of the House. So you would want to keep him there. Um, and Jim Jordan declined. Now that the speakership battle is open again, Jim Jordan says, pick me. And the battle for speakership is really between McHenry, who has it as the temporary speaker right now, Steve Scalise, and Jim Jordan. Now, Steve Scalise is much to the is much more moderate than Jim Jordan, let's say. Right. So you could say that Steve Scalise would be uh McCarthy part two. That I think that'd be fair. There's some differences, but I think it's fair. To characterize that, Steve Scalise is also the the leader right now in the House, the GOP leader. Um, he has a lot of support from the establishment side of the GOP. Jim Jordan, of course, has a lot of support from the Freedom Caucus and then from those in between Freedom Caucus and establishment. Jim Jordan also has a lot of support from MAGA, a ton of support from MAGA. So Jordan now says, nine months later or thereabout, I want to be speaker. And so I think there's something um, we can read into this. I'll read his letter first before I, I give y'all my, my insight on it, or what I think may be some insight. All right, so starting, he says, we should be proud of what we achieved together in these divided times, but our work is not done. Far left progressive policies are destroying our communities, our security and future. We have soaring crime across the country. We have this and this and this and this and this. We're all aware of these things. The Republican majority must continue to address the issues that matter to the American people. We must address rising crime in major cities and reject soft on crime pro-criminal policies. We must get our fiscal house in order and reduce spending so that we can leave more to the next generation than a crushing deficit. We must do our constitutional oversight of the government bureaucracy to ensure they work for the American people. Well, that's what Jim has been doing. And we must continue working to secure the border and protect our national security. We agreed at the beginning of Congress that there are three fundamental, th fundamental things the House must do. Pass the bills that needed to be passed, do the oversight, and rein in spending. Working with Chairman Green and our leadership, I helped to deliver the most significant... Sorry, a little fly in here. I mean, I'm with, with other... I, where, uh, I lost my place. You damn fly. 
Working with Chairman Green and our leadership, I helped to deliver the most significant legislative accomplishment this Congress, the strongest immigration and border enforcement bill ever, which, of course, the Senate won't pass and Joe Biden won't sign. With other committee chairs and the members of the Judiciary Committee, I am doing the oversight and holding the administration accountable. That's true. And I have been among the leaders in the pushing for fiscal discipline my entire career. We are at a critical threshold or critical crossroad in our nation's history. Now is the time for our Republican conference to come together to keep our promises to America. The problems we face are challenging, but they are not insurmountable. We can focus on the changes that improve the country and unite us in offering real solutions. But no matter what we do, we must do it together as a conference. I respectfully ask for your support for Speaker of the House Representatives, signed Jen Jordan. So what changed? What changed? What how what changed to where Jim Jordan doesn't need to be chair judiciary and over oversight anymore? Nine months ago, Jim Jordan was like, I can't be speaker right now. I have all this work to do on oversight and judiciary. Oh, Arl Skeeter says I said Chairman Graham, but it's Chairman. Sorry, I did, I misspoke. Yeah, it's Chairman Green. So, I think I think there's a couple possibilities here. I think either Jim Jordan has accomplished as much as, as much as he can with oversight. And on the judiciary, I'm going to end up killing this this little fly. I like y'all are going to witness me catch another fly on stream. I've done it before. Um, so something changed. It's either that his work on judiciary and oversight got as far as he believes he can get, which is pretty damn far. We've gotten a lot of stuff. But maybe it's as far as we can get, either as in there's no more that we can get like right now because we need a speaker like Jim Jordan. So we need Jim Jordan to be up there and to advance the subpoenas and to unite Republicans to get more access to stuff. Like Jim Jordan's got as far as he can get without having a strong MAGA America first speaker, or it's as far as he can get, period. Because everything else is under uh, is under lock and key from special counsel Weiss and other and, and DOJ and the White House, and there's nothing more they're going to be able to get, regardless of who's speaker. Um, I I I think that I think it's more so that. But either way, I feel good about it because I feel like there's a, like it's a marker that Jim Jordan got as far as he could go in the position he was in. And now it's time for him to advance to speaker in order to get more done. So I think that's a, like, I see that as a good thing. I think we can read into it that Jim Jordan has gotten 
to a significant place and it's time for an upgrade, right? I think it's I think it's good. Like I, what I'm saying is that it's not just good that Jim Jordan wants to be speaker. I'm saying that he's it's good that he's at a point as far as being chair of judiciary committee, the chair of select subcommittee, the chair of oversight and accountability. He's at a point where now he's gotten as far as he can get and he's he's hit those objectives that he can hit on those committees and now it's time for him to be speaker. Trump was asked about being speaker and this is a really popular thing. I think most people are like screaming for Trump to be speaker. I'm not a big fan of the idea. As I said on Devolution Power Hour, I've never been a big fan of this idea of Trump being speaker. But here's what here's what Trump said. Quote, I have been asked to speak as a unifier because I have so many friends in Congress, Trump told Fox News Digital. If they don't get the vote, they have asked me if I would consider taking the speakership until they get somebody longer term because I am running for president. So he said, if they don't get the vote, they asked me if I would consider taking the speakership. So I read into that to mean if they... If we get into a situation where they can't elect the speaker, it, the Republicans are too divided to choose someone, they're asking Trump to step in. Quote, they have asked me if I would take it for a short period of time for the party until they come to a conclusion. I'm not doing it because I want to. I will do it if necessary, should they not be able to make their decision meaning decide on who the speaker is going to be. Trump did not specify who had asked him, although a number of GOP lawmakers have said he is their preference for speaker. Quote, I would only do it for the party, Trump said, stressing that his focus is on the presidential campaign. My friend Storm Arrive posted, sounds like DJT is, is, will be endorsing Jim Jordan for speaker. And he was right. Just a few hours. I think it was just a few hours later. So, oh, this is the, the next day. The next day, uh, late last night, Trump endorsed Jim Jordan. This is what he said. Congressman Jim Jordan has been a star long before making his very successful journey to Washington, D.C., representing Ohio's fourth congressional district. Respected by all, he is now chairman of the House Judiciary Committee. As president, I had the honor of presenting Jim with our country's highest civilian award, the Presidential Medal of Freedom. So much is learned from sports, and Jim was a master. While attending Graham High School, he won state championships all four years, a rarity, and compiled an amazing 156-1 record. At the University of Wisconsin-Madison, Jim became a two-time NCAA Division I wrestling champion. He won his 1985-86 NCAA championship matches in his weight class. Jim has a master's degree in education from Ohio State University and a law degree from Capital University. He is strong on crime, borders, our military vets, and Second Amendment. Jim, his wife, Polly, and family are outstanding. He will be a great speaker of the House and has my complete and total endorsement. So that's great. I wonder what negotiating will happen in order to get Jim elected as speaker. Because the GOP establishment, the people that are the rhinos, those furthest away from the Freedom Caucus and Matt Gates, and those who are pissed at Matt Gates. Don't I'm telling you guys, 
don't underestimate how pissed off the GOP establishment is at Matt Gates and the seven other Republicans who joined him in getting rid of McCarthy. They're probably pissed off enough that they will do everything they can to stop whoever Matt Gates's pick for speaker is. And the only person who can tell them to shut up and get in line is Donald Trump. So don't like I'm telling you, I I think there could be quite a a, a nasty fight and probably already there probably already is a nasty, a nasty fight happening right now. Um and that's right, Iowa Trump. Jim Jordan supported McCarthy. And I think, like you're saying, remain neutral. I think that's about right. Um, I, I, would ver- I would really caution people to not read too much in to where people stood on the motion to vacate and get, and, and like, I wouldn't, I wouldn't read too much into these things about who voted for who. Um, at that mo- at that moment because i think i think everything that's happening is because trump wants it to happen and the more i think on it the more i'm convinced that we're seeing the scaramucci model being applied to the speakership i said this on devolution power hour and seeing trump say that he would serve for a short period of time and also endorsing Jim Jordan, it really makes me think that that is what is going on. That we're going to... See, the old way, this is another reason why the old guard is so pissed. The old way is that the whole party unifies around one candidate who's milk toast and agreeable, rates highly in agreeableness. Not in, not in fortitude, but in agreeableness. And uh, that person is elected speaker, and then they're like house royalty, and they're untouchable, and they're speaker for as long as that party has the house. And I think that's being undone because it's a stupid way to run things. And instead, we're being shown that a Scaramucci model, which is... The Scaramucci model is um, you pick a person not because of you like them, because they're a white hat, a black hat, a good guy, a bad guy. You don't pick them because you agree with them on everything. You pick you pick them because they're capable of serving a purpose and accomplishing an objective during that time. So McCarthy... I think McCarthy was chosen as speaker and Trump endorsed him and wanted him to be speaker because he wanted somebody who would be emblematic and like could be tied to the swamp and uniparty. And that's what MAGA media activated full out has been trying their damnedest to make McCarthy enemy number one of MAGA, regardless of how much sense it makes. And I'm not even going to argue it because there's no point because people won't listen to me anyway. Because their favorite Con Inc. person and influencer has told them many, many times that McCarthy is bad. So it doesn't matter. But Trump wanted that narrative. 
He wanted that specific person. He wanted McCarthy up there in the speakership. While McCarthy is speaker, all of this bad stuff is going on in the country, and McCarthy can be tied to it. McCarthy can be tied to the failed debt deal. He can be tied to Ukraine spending. He can be tied to all sorts of things and blamed for it. And McCarthy takes on all of that baggage. But McCarthy also, at the same time he's doing all that, he's allowing the judiciary to do what they want to do, the weaponization of government committee to do what they want to do, the oversight committee to do what they want to do, House Ways and Means Committee to do what they want to do. So McCarthy is taking all of this flack from MAGA media and influencers and other people in his party like Matt Gates. But while he's taking all that damage and all this, the focus is on him for that, he's allowing these committees to do all of this investigative work, which was way more important. And then now that he's been taken out, and he allowed himself to be taken out. He really did. He allowed himself to be taken out. He could have negotiated with Democrats to save his butt. He could have negotiated with Democrats and asked them to save him because a much more conservative speaker is going to be behind him. He could have made that case. But he didn't. He allowed himself to be taken out because I think his job was done. I think his job was to represent the swamp and to take all that flack and all that damage and all those, those negative headlines while these committees did their work. And then now it's time for a new person. Either, either uh, Trump comes in and serves for a very short time. And again, that would be Scaramucci model, the very definition of it. Trump would step in to unify the GOP. Like he said, until they could choose someone else that they wanted up there. That would be the Scaramucci model. And then if Jordan gets in, I have no doubt that Jordan's going to be in there for a specific time period, for a specific purpose. I mean, everybody seems to forget that McCarthy authorized the beginning. He had to sign off on it. He signed off on the impeachment inquiry into the Biden crime family seven days before he was, he was, uh, they had their first hearing seven days before he was booted as speaker. He gave he gave the America First con, uh, America First element of Congress and MAGA what MAGA wanted. He gave them the impeachment inquiry and a whole bunch of other things. But everybody brings up there's some choice things that people bring up that McCarthy didn't do. Um, a lot of them are things he couldn't do. A lot of them are just things that he simply could not do them, but it, they were demanded of him. So anyway, I think it's, um, I think it is the Scaramucci model. And I think the Scaramucci model is a much better model for Congress. I think this is like, this is a good way to go forward is that we choose people to lead certain parts of um, of Congress, uh, whether it's committee chairmanship or the speaker or the leader or the whip, because they're uniquely qualified and adept at accomplishing certain objectives in that role at that time, not because they've been in Congress for so many years, 
not because they have the same group of lobbyists funding them as the other guys, not because they go to the same parties or have the same mistresses or masseuses or whatever, like, or the same tailors or like same vacation homes. Like the good old boy, the good old boy network needs to be destroyed. And we need to choose people because of what they can actually accomplish and what they bring to the table. And if it means they're only in that role for three months, okay, fine. I'm not bothered. And I, I think most of y'all aren't bothered uh, that if Congress gets interrupted and Congress can't do anything for a couple months, so effing what I want Congress to do less. I want Congress, Congress to be less powerful and to do less work. I want them to pass less bills, less regulations, spend less money. <laughs> I I want them near like I want them barely functioning. I want Congress to barely function at all because I want the I whenever a moment arises where we actually need Congress to do something, I want it to be so severe that it comes with this mandate of exactly what they specifically are supposed to do, such as fund the military for this thing or that, or something like that, right? Like, I, I don't, I want absolute, I want Congress to be boring. I want, every time Congress shows up for a session, I want there to be dust and cobwebs everywhere and for it to have to be cleaned first because it nobody's been in there to do any work, quote unquote, for a month. Like every time. So, and having a Scaramucci model, having them not be afraid to challenge who leadership is and who the speakership is at any moment and use that motion to vacate, I think it serves us well. I hope they don't rate, they're definitely going to raise it to be more than one person. They're definitely going to raise it to be more than one person. Uh, I hope they keep it, I hope it's like five. I hope they don't make it more than five. But we'll we'll see. All right, let's go on. Um, let's go on over to some Trump cases. Easy three cents over on Foxhole. Uh, I totally agree with you. They said that, uh, in my honest opinion, DJT freed McCarthy from the swamp or what from what the swamp had on him. He did exactly what he was supposed to do and got to walk away after setting up the rhinos. I completely agree. 100%. I completely agree. Okay. We've got several updates in Trump's cases. One, Trump is suing ex-British spy Christopher Steele over the dossier. Yeah, Iowa Trump, good luck with that. <laughs> I totally agree with Iowa Trump, but you can't, like, you can't. Like, McCarthy was the nut. People aren't going to realize this until the midterms come up again. But McCarthy was the number one fundraiser in the House. 
And if you bring that up, people are get upset because they say, yeah, but he didn't back my favorite MAGA Republican in my district. Okay, well, maybe they couldn't win. And so he chose to spend the money on someone who could win because after all, it's a numbers game. But it's a big, this is something that Republicans are going to have to deal with now. There's going to be a fallout financially as far as which PACs support what politicians. Because McCarthy would direct certain PACs to put their money behind certain candidates and districts that could win. That's how we took back the House. And um, that's under threat now. All right, so anyway, Trump sues ex-British spy Christopher Steele over his infamous Russia dossier. A two-day hearing for data protection claim set to take place next month in London's high court. I know the story is a little bit old, but we haven't covered it here. Donald Trump is suing ex-British spy over the Steele dossier, which made a string of explosive claims. Blah, blah. Mr. Trump has brought a data protection claim against Christopher Steele and his company Orbis Business Intelligence in the UK high court. The dossier was published by BuzzFeed, blah, blah, blah. Mr. Steele used to work for MI6. We all know, we know all that information. According to a court order published in London on Thursday, golly, my dang allergies. A two-day hearing on Mr. Trump's legal action is set to start on 16th October. Mr. Steele, who used to work undercover in Moscow, alleged in the dossier that Trump had been compromised. Mr. Steele has also been a confidential informant for the FBI since 2013, and his past work was, quote, considered credible. I'm skipping a lot of this stuff because we already know it. Okay, there's nothing new in there. So I spent some time trying to find this case. It says that um, there's court records that show that Trump is suing him, but of course, this is over in the U.K., and so for the first time I went to UK court websites and I was trying to figure out how I could find these records. I haven't, I haven't been able to. So if anybody finds these court filings anywhere, I would appreciate you uh, sending them to me, like commenting on a true social or Twitter post, X post, whatever. And, um, because I want to read them. I want to read this lawsuit against Christopher Steele, but I honestly, I can't find it. I can't find the documents. If anyone else does, please let me know. All right. This broke yesterday. Donald Trump had a lawsuit against Michael Cohen, and Trump was supposed to be deposed by Michael Cohen this coming Monday. But instead, Trump has dropped the lawsuit. I believe it's a $500 million lawsuit. Yeah, it's $500 million lawsuit against Cohen. But Trump says he's simply pausing the suit. But he suggests it will remain paused until he gets through his four criminal cases. Under federal rules, he can refile, but then he'd be subject to the same deposition he sought to avoid on Monday. One other note, he actually filed this suit after being indicted on the Cohen-related hush money criminal case in New York in March. So Trump says he's pausing this suit and he'll, he'll refile it later. It's kind of interesting. Um, I think Michael Cohen and Trump are working together. 
and it's theatrics between them. Uh, I know some of the chat agrees, some don't. Next thing, Trump is asking Judge Cannon to move his documents trial from May of next year to December. He says he hasn't been able to access a swath of classified docs central to his case and that the skiff in Florida isn't ready to handle them yet. Okay, so let's go through this because you guys remember that um, Trump wanted to use his own skiff and Judge Cannon ended up saying not explicitly that you can't use your own skiff, but that we're going to leave it up to the CISO, the Chief Information Security Officer, I think it's CISO, and um, classified stuff started being turned over, but he hasn't been able to get all of it. So let's let's read this filing and see if the Mar-a-Lago skiff is on the table. I actually haven't read this filing. Let's just let's just see what skiff they're talking about if we can figure it out. Um, and again, apologies for my allergies. I am under attack. I took the dogs walking last night at the soccer field. Uh, while my oldest son practiced and um, I got pulled into a lot of trees and into the, the woods a bit and I'm allergic to every tree on earth, which is why I am firmly against uh, reforestation. I believe we need more deforestation, please. Especially, especially we need more deforestation in Southern Virginia. I fully support the cutting down of all trees Southern Virginia, or as many as possible. <laughs> no trees. <laughs> Let's turn this place into a prairie land, like my home in Texas. All right. President Donald J. Trump respectfully submits this memorandum in support of one, his pending motion for a revised schedule for motions to compel, and SIPA, that's Classified Information Protection Act, uh, litigation. An adjournment of the trial date until at least mid-November 2024 in light of additional ongoing discovery failures by the special counsel's office. So he is saying that the special counsel's office is not providing the information. Let's look at the footnote. It's always important to look at footnotes. One, President Trump filed the first part of his motion pursuant to the court's instruction to file, quote, any motion to extend deadlines related to SIPA Section 4 by September 22nd, 2023. When considering the opposition submission by the special counsel's office, the status of discovery and the lack of necessary secure, secure facilities, the defense determined that the current schedule, even beyond SIPA 4 litigation, is unworkable. So they're citing a lack of facilities. So maybe there's one that there isn't any that have been approved in Southern, Southern Florida. Um, surely there's a skiff that meets these guidelines in Southern Florida. Surely. Surely. On July 18th, 2023, the special counsel's office represented to the court that all discovery would be available on day one. Those are quotes. Following the court's July 21st scheduling order, the same office demanded a conflicting schedule in United States v. Donald Trump in D.C. The March 4th, 2023 trial date in the District of Columbia and the underlying schedule in that case currently require President Trump and his lawyers to be in two places at once. And months after the office's representation to the court, discovery is not complete in this case. 
including with respect to the classified documents at issue in more than 25% of the 793 counts in the seven, like as in us code 18 USC 793 in the superseding indictment, this ongoing non-compliance cannot be written off as a series of brief delays or a slightly longer than anticipated time frame. Let's look at the footnote here. Indeed, the office's delay has compounded the scheduling challenges previously identified by Christopher Keiss, co-counsel on this case. Mr. Keiss has not yet been cleared fully to review all the SIPA materials and is currently representing Mr. Trump in a trial in New York, which is expected to conclude by December 22nd, 2023. Well, after expiration of many current deadlines, as well as the hearing dates. Hold on just a moment. You got to boom. There we go. I had to take care of something in chat. Mr. Kites has not yet been fully cleared to review of this stuff. He's got another case going on. He has therefore had no opportunity to review any of the SIP materials or to participate in the preparation of the defense. President Trump should not be denied the assistance of core counsel in a matter of this significance due to the government's delay in discovery process. Do you guys remember um, back when some of this came up, I mentioned that there was a problem with these two cases because um, Jack Smith has brought the Docs case in Florida first and then the, doc, then the J6 insurrection case election interference, whatever you want to call it, in D.C. And Jack Smith is in both, he's he's the special counsel bringing both of those cases in two different districts, but he's putting four schedules that conflict with each other. And the Judge Cannon is not going to like that. And I and I I speculated that we could we could be head for a time where Judge Cannon gets gets mad at Jack Smith for basically disregarding um disregarding this one and like um oh look we got another one this is hilarious Is this like Kevin McCarthy bots, like anti-Kevin McCarthy bots that are raiding these cha my channel? That's hilarious. Wow. All right. So anyway. So yeah, I think we're headed for that conflict where Judge Cannon is going to get pissed at Jack Smith and tell him, look, you can't, this case you brought first and you're not going to, you're not going to insult my court by creating conflicts with the schedule in this court and this other case you brought against the same defendant over in DC. Let's see, that was footnote two. Okay, here we are. Let me go back here. Nevertheless, cling to an unprecedented and now untenable trial date. The office presses the court to continue with an accelerated schedule that the prosecutors have not followed and that in all likelihood will require multiple rounds of SIPA litigation. The demands of the special counsel's office must give way to the constitutional rights of the defendants and the interests of the judicial economy. Therefore, President Trump respectfully requests that the court adopt his proposed revised schedule for motions to compel and SIPA for litigation. 
scheduled trial to begin a date convenient to the court in or after in or after November 2024 and set forth deadlines after the office is in compliance with the discovery obligations. Again, another footnote. I didn't think with Trump, I didn't think I'd said FBI one time this morning. <laughs> oh, well. Uh, footnote, co-defendants Nada and De Oliveira join these motions. The special counsel's office objects to the re requested adjournments. Counsel for President Trump requests an opportunity to be heard regarding the timing and sequencing of the additional events contemplated by the current scheduling order after the filing of any responsive submission by the office and replies hereto. Next section. The court has already admonished the special counsel's office for failing to establish appropriate facilities in this district before bringing the case. Wow, they're back again. Okay, we're just going to end up banning all of these accounts. This is going to be fun. The court was correct, and there are now additional problems relating to this issue. The office's failure to timely remedy the situation is, al is alone a basis for granting requested adjournments. Good thing some people bought me coffees so that I can be caffeinated enough to multitask by modding chat and reading this document. Thank you for the coffee, everybody. We understand that it will be more than three months before a secure facility is established in the Northern Division. What the world? Thus, the special cons count. Okay, whoa. So they got Judge Cannon to approve the SIPA schedule so that they could turn over classified discovery to Trump and told the judge that it would all the classified stuff would be available on day one once she signed off on the SIPA order. And now it turns out that there was no skiff. There's no secure facility in the district that has been approved for them to look at this classified intelligence. So or classified information. And there's not going to be one for three months. Yet the schedule has already started. They're already in the time crunch of when they're supposed to be getting this stuff. So Jack Smith, they screwed Trump's defense team. And they, I mean, this reads like they duped judge. They misrepresented. Let's say that they misrepresented how things would go to uh, Judge Cannon. Thus, while the special counsel's office urges the court to accept the SIP before filing in less than a week, it does not appear that there is a place for the court to maintain that submission in its custody while the motion is under consideration. Even more problematic, we understand that the court currently lacks access in the Northern, Northern Division to one, electronic facilities necessary to write opinions and orders related to classified information at issue, and two, physical space to conduct hearing relating uh, hearings related to any SIPA four motion, or pursuant to SIPA five through six. Copies of the classified discovery have not been transported to the Miramar facility, which we also understand has not yet been approved for review and storage of classified discovery. This, along with the fact that the defense only has access to a small temporary facility in Miami, 
has delayed President Trump's personal review of the classified discovery under procedures that the court approved on September 12th, 2023. Okay, so there is a facility, but it's a temporary one in Miami. The special counsel's office also waited until the day after filing its opposition submission to notify President Trump that the owners of the documents at issue, well, that's curious, I wonder if I wonder if this uh this account that is uh using every single one of their alts to come in here and copy paste the same messages over and over. I wonder if it's one of the members of 17 Sog, because it just seems to be about that level of intellectuality. All right, so who are the oh, this is weird, guys. Who are the owners? The special counsel's office also waited until the day after filing its opposition submission to notify President Trump that, quote, the owners of the documents at issue in four of the 793 charges had required those documents to be removed from the Miami skiff, quote, until further notice. What is going on? Who are the owners of these classified documents and why have they asked for them to be removed? Is it NARA, DNI? What is this is weird. We have not been provided with an estimate of when those materials will be returned. While the office has offered to make those documents available in Washington, D.C., the logistics of that arrangement are unworkable because the other classified discovery is in this district. The documents at issue must be reviewed in conjunction with those additional materials, and we have no way of transporting classified notes and other work product from the District of Columbia to this district. The prejudice to President Trump resulting from the current arrangement is exacerbated by the fact that, to our knowledge, the office's lawyers, investigators, and support staff face no such issues. In sum, the special counsel's office has failed to make very basic arrangements in this district for the handling of the relevant classified information, the holding of necessary SIPA hearings, and the production of related work product by the court and counsel. The requested adjournments are necessary to allow time for these facilities to be established. Man, this is a pretty good um, filing here and a pretty good argument by, by Trump's attorneys, and it's a egregious situation that Jack Smith has put them in. The special counsel's office did not address, much less defend its representations to the court in June and July. It was prepared to produce, quote, all discovery from, quote, day one, including, quote, all witness statements. Those representations were the fundamental premise for the current schedule, and they were not accurate. Therefore, the adjournment request should be granted. Since the court's July 21st, 2023 scheduling order, and notwithstanding the day one representation of the special counsel's office, the office further complicated the case by charging a third defendant and producing approximately 23% more unclassified discovery. Specifically, by the time of the order, the office had made two productions consisting of approximately 550,490 records. 
in excess of 1.1 million pages, which included, one, approximately 236,740 emails plus their attachments, two, more than 313,750 documents from 96 separate custodians, three, 57 terabytes of compressed raw CCTV footage. Since the scheduling order, the office has produced approximately 131,272 records, totaling nearly 166,554 pages, including approximately 1,375 emails and attachments, more than 129,897 additional documents, and 19 terabytes of CCTV footage. The court observed in the scheduled scheduling order that, quote, discovery in this case is exceedingly voluminous and will require substantial time to review and digest in accordance with defendants' right to a fair trial. In light of the post-order productions, President Trump requires more time to review these materials. The special counsel's office fails to acknowledge its written representations to the court as early as June 2023 that it would promptly produce all witness statements even if they would not be deemed discoverable under 18 U.S.C. 3500. The office now declares that it will produce one, quote, agent communications that are Jinx Act material for testifying agents at an unspecified later date. And two, quote, a small volume of classified Jinx material, primarily agent emails, again, without explaining when it will do so. While we are aware of the deadlines imposed by the Jinx Act, the office itself agreed much earlier productions when agreed to much earlier productions when urging the court to set the current unprecedentedly accelerated schedule. Nine of the documents charged in the 32 pending 793E counts, as well as quote several uncharged documents, are not available to the defense in this district. Footnote. As we understand it, Documents relating to counts 6, 22, 26, and 30 have been relocated to the District of Columbia at the request of, quote, the owners. The documents relating to counts 5, 9, 17, 20, and 29 are not available to President Trump or counsel at any location. The document count or no, the document relating to count 19 was made available to President Trump for the first time in late afternoon on October 3rd, only after counsel left the district following two days of review at the temporary Miami skiff. Whoa. So they were working for two days straight in the skiff in Miami. They leave and then Jack Smith makes some documents available right after they leave. Special counsel's office has also previewed um, an additional classified production by October 6th of, quote, certain materials that defendants have described as outstanding, including information related to classification reviews conducted in the case. See, this is, okay, this is really important. This is really important. Trump, okay, and this actually might explain what's going on here, guys. Uh, Trump's team has already told Judge Cannon that they plan to challenge the classification status of each document in the case. In other words, they plan to challenge whether or not any of these documents are actually classified 
when Trump took them and while Trump had them that he just as Trump had said, he declassified all this stuff. None of this stuff is classified. Some of it has still had the markings of being classified, but it's no longer classified. And so Trump's lawyers are wanting all this, this, this classification, this classified material is extremely important to them because they want to pick it apart and prove that each one of these things that, that he's charged with these documents, um, unlawfully having are not classified anymore. One, two, he was allowed to have them under the presidential records act to do that. Obviously they need the documents and they need the classified information that goes along with them that details why they are classified. So by setting them up in a temporary facility, withholding classified information from them, withholding these documents, moving them around from Miami to DC, having people or whoever these owners are, quote unquote, take documents away so that Trump and team can't even look at them. And then there's all this other discovery out there that Trump and team can't get a peek at it and don't know what it is. They can't challenge the classification status. And right here, information related to the classification reviews conducted in the case. That classification reviews are the reviews of this material that say whether or not it actually is classified. That is specifically what they need. Like that might be the most important thing they need in this classified information discovery. They need those reviews. You guys remember right after the Mar-a-Lago raid, um, one of the things that happened with the documents they took uh, from Mar-a-Lago was that they sent them off to be reviewed to see if they were classified. That's what those are. That's what they're talking about here. All right. Despite all this, the special counsel's office seems pleased to report that it has produced the majority of the declassified discovery and that it anticipates producing. This is a marked departure from the office's representation to the court months ago, and there is cause for concern that the office, quote, anticipates producing, or what the office, meaning the special counsel's office, anticipates producing is less than what it is obligated to produce. In this regard, we note that as of yet, unproduced classification reviews are obviously discoverable, and the office told the court in July that, quote, all the documents had been through that process, but the office only agreed to produce these materials after President Trump raised the issue in connection with this motion. These are not mere complaints. The special counsel's office has not provided some of the most basic discovery in the case. Given the current schedule, we cannot understate the prejudice to President Trump arising from his lack of access to these critical materials months after they should have been produced. For example, it is difficult to meaningfully review portions of the classified interviews stored in the temporary Miami skiff that relate to documents that are not located here. Moreover, our discovery request to the Office of Special Counsel will be document-specific, and we cannot move forward with that process until we have all of the materials and access to a computer that we can use to write about them. Okay, so what they mean is that uh, in the skiff, okay, in a skiff, like uh, they go into the skiff and they're going to be reviewing some of these documents that are classified information, and they're in this secure facility they can't just bring their laptop in there or their iPad 
and then write a motion like this. They have to use computers that are already in that secure facility that aren't on the internet that are secure. They're specific computers that are for the skiff and they're only used inside that skiff. So they're in a situation where not only do they not are they not able to access all of the classified information in the temporary skiff in Miami. They can't even write the papers they need to write about these documents. So, for example, say they get the classification review for a document. Let's just, just pretend like one document. They got one document there. They want to, They have their classification review information about that one document. They want to challenge it. They want to challenge the classification of that document. <clears throat> to challenge it, they need to write a motion about that document. They need to have it there in front of them. And they're going to write a motion and then they're going to file it with the court under seal. They can't do it in this facility. So they're completely kneecapped. And let's say they got this document or they have some classified information and they realize there's more discovery or there's more material that they want to ask Jack Smith for. And they need to file a motion to requesting more discovery. Let's say more emails from the agents to each other, or they want to have um, an FBI report or something that is mentioned in this classified information. They need to write a motion and file it with the court for discovery. They can't do that. As things are right now, they can't even do that. As with the lack of secure facilities for handling evidence in this case, the special counsel's office seems to disclaim responsibility for the status of classified discovery. The office points to no instance in which we have delayed a required read-in that was made available to us, because that has not happened. The office is responsible for complying with discovery obligations, including navigating restrictions and concerns from the, quote, owners and equity holders of the relevant materials that the office so proudly identified in the superseding indictment. It is not at all irregular for these types of issues to arise in a case of this nature. What is irregular is the schedule pressed by the office, notwithstanding its failures to make appropriate arrangements on the timeline it demanded. In response to President Trump's concerns that the current schedule is unworkable because of the need for further discovery and simple litigation arising from Supplemental Prudential Search Request, or PSRs, it would have been very simple for the special counsel's office to explain, if true, that it has completed PSRs. PSRs are prudential search request for supplemental SIPA uh, litigation. That it has completed PSRs and incorporated the findings into the office's plans for classified discovery and SIPA practice. The office suggests as much, but it fails to confirm by distinguishing Teixeira on the basis that those prosecutors, quote, had no time to assess or prepare discovery in the investigative phase. Instead, with notable vagueness, the office conceded that PSRs are, quote, sometimes conducted in national security cases and acknowledged that prosecutors typically do this before charges are filed. The office failed to explain whether and to what extent it conducted PSRs in this case. These are material omissions that must be addressed before the court resolves this motion. First, 
President Trump has identified provisions of the Justice Manual that require PSRs and examples of cases in which prosecutors conducted PSRs. <clears throat> oh, it says United States versus Saab. Hey, that's Alex Saab. We covered him before on this show. I wrote a Substack about him. I haven't checked in on his case in a while. All right, anyway. If the special counsel's office has declined to collect and review USCI, USIC, sorry, USIC holdings in connection with this case, it should be required to make that clear on the record. In light of the frequency with which PSRs are conducted in cases around the country, the failure to conduct them here would itself be a discoverable fact because inter alia, it would implicate President Trump's due process rights and serve as evidence of a type of prosecutorial intent that is relevant to President Trump's anticipated selective prosecution motion. Second, the special counsel's office is wrong that PSRs are, quote, not legally required, end quote, under the circumstances of this case, because some of the documents at issue address topics that are covered in open source materials. It is extremely likely that at least some USIC holdings undercut the office's contention that documents dating back to 2017 and earlier contain information that was closely held at the time of the alleged unlawful retention in 2021 and 2022. Footnote, the special counsel's office does concede that it must demonstrate that alleged, quote, national defense information was, quote, closely held by the government which is what they claim Trump had, which is how they're charging him under the Espionage Act. But they have to prove that. As a result, the office is on notice of potentially exculpatory information held by the same, quote, owners. It acknowledges communicating with regarding the case. Hmm. Hmm. And it has a constitutional obligation to Brady to collect and produce those materials. Accordingly, the court should require the Office of Special Counsel to disclose the nature of the PSRs that it has conducted thus far before deciding whether the requested adjournments are necessary. There is no merit to the objections by the Special Counsel's Office to President Trump's request to proceed with motion to compel litigation followed by a single round of SIPA for litigation. Most importantly, the Special Counsel's Office misapprehends the import of United States versus Stillwell. And still well, a DOJ component convinced a district court that materials relating to its SIPA 4 motion were too sensitive to be disclosed to defense or the prosecutors. The Second Circuit rejected that contention and ordered the prosecutors to produce any material that was discoverable, notwithstanding its classification. The salient point is that prosecutors often contend that materials subject to a SIPA 4 motion are too sensitive to be disclosed to the defense. And Stillwell is an example of an appellate court rejecting that position without the resulting parade of horribles that the office is suggesting would follow from disclosure of its SIPA 4. Speaking of for the entire government, the special counsel's office asserts that it is not aware of any case in which a court has permitted a responsive briefing schedule under SIPA 4. The contention is surprising as DOJ's National Security Division has overseen at least several cases where judges have proceeded in precisely that fashion. The special counsel's office also mischaracterizes United States versus CAMPA as binding precedent, requiring that the office be permitted to file SIPA before motion ex parte. CAMPA stands for undisputed proposition that the court has discretion to accept ex parte filings in connection with this type of motion. 
No authority, however, requires that course. President Trump will argue at the appropriate time that, under the unique circumstances of this case, ex parte proceedings are not necessary, and the appropriate course is attorneys' eyes-only handling of classified information at issue to facilitate appropriate adversarial proceedings relating to the application of the the relevant or helpful standard. The special counsel's office makes a concerted effort to narrow the permissible substance of any defense submission relating to SIPA 4, referring to it four times as a, quote, outline. President Trump does not envision a brief or conclusory submission, and the court should expect much more in a case involving more than a million pages of discovery, where the office will ask the court to condone the withholding of otherwise discoverable information. The office also argues that if the court does not grant the SIPA 4 motion under the office's preferred conditions, it, quote, cannot produce the documents at all. That is an empty threat. If the office cannot use SIPA in a permissible fashion to comply with discovery obligations, the appropriate remedy will be dismissal. Finally, the special counsel's office describes two cases that involve multiple SIPA 4 motions within four months and acknowledges that supplemental filings under SIPA 4 and 5 may be necessary here. The office also contends that other cases are distinguishable because they involved, quote, belated revelations of the existence of potentially relevant classified information. Hmm. These assertions do not support the office's position. Rather, the citations underscore that the office prefers to push ahead with multiple inefficient rounds of SIPA practice. That approach is entirely unwarranted, where the office has not made available adequate facilities for the motions it plans to file and related hearings or disclose to President Trump all of the materials to which he is entitled in a case that is destined for additional untimely disclosures in light of the fact the office did not even include the classification reviews in its initial classified productions. There is no good reason to continue on the current path. Therefore, President Trump respectfully submits that the adjournment request should be granted. Signed, Christopher Keis and Todd Blanche, counsel for President Trump. Well, that filing was more interested than even I expected. If I get a chance, I'm going to write a thread about this one later today. Hopefully I get a chance because there's, there's quite a bit in that. We have, more, we have more news in Trump cases, but I did see some rants come through, and I want to thank you guys for them. Um, let me get this. There we go. So, Bear BL, thank you very much for the coffee money. Much appreciated. RL Skeeter, thank you very much for coffee and antihistamines. Yes, I did take an antihistamine this morning, like I always do, but uh, yeah, it hasn't kicked in quite, quite enough. Uh, Liz Jen, thank you very much for the rant. Boom diggity. Wow. Thank you very much. Hey, I really appreciate that, man. That's very generous. And also, uh, yeah, thank you. I do plan on having a wonderful weekend. I think we have soccer games. I think we have soccer games to Saturday and Sunday. Um, or no. I think both of my boys have a soccer game at the same time on different fields on Saturday. And then there's another soccer game on Sunday. Uh, and then I got to train these dogs. So it's going to be a busy weekend. I'm sure it'll be wonderful though. There's formula one that I will somehow try and make time to watch. 
Thank you guys for the rants. Really appreciate it. Over on Foxhole, thank you guys for the gold pills. Filter Dog says, my understanding is DJT is not being charged with classified docs, only retention of documents. It's Yeah, he's being charged with the retention of national defense information, which is under the Espionage Act, which is why that line uh, that they closed right here, this footnote, the special office, special counsel's office concedes that it must demonstrate that alleged, quote, national defense information was closely held by the government. That's the crux here. Uh, Trump team needs that classification review materials because they want to challenge the classification status of each document that the special counsel's office says is national defense information. The special counsel's office has to call it that because that's what this stuff is called under the Espionage Act, which Trump's lawyers also plan to challenge, that this stuff is not covered under the Espionage Act. It's covered under the Presidential Records Act. Um, but yeah, you're right. It's the retention of national defense information. Let me see. Did I miss any more? Thank you, Filter Dog. Thank you, Chillin' Yo Chillin'. Much appreciated. Okay, this next one. What time is it? Okay, cool. I think we'll still have time for uh, Samuel Bankman Freed. All right, so in the DC case, Trump has filed a motion to dismiss. I am not going to read this whole motion. Uh, it's 52 pages. I just don't have time to read it this morning, although I'm... I'm going to scan it and maybe we'll watch or watch. I see, I see Mark McCoskey. Good morning. Mentioning F1. <laughs> like, yeah, I got to watch qualifying today. <laughs> uh, I'm speaking, I'm speaking about one thing, but the thoughts in my head were immediately, immediately went to formula one. All right. So I'm going to skim this and I may, he's citing presidential immunity that everything he did was in the capacity as, as president and he's protected uh, based on presidential immunity. Uh, so I may present this next week, may read it or make a recording of reading it. I'm not sure yet. I'm not sure yet. Uh, but this is one that I'm really excited about. Judge Ingeron, that mean terrible, no good bastard in New York who's trying to take Trump's companies away and all that stuff, right? That guy. He put out an order yesterday. He ordered that Trump, Don Jr., Eric Trump, Weiselberg, and McConney must report to an independent monitor. And to that monitor, they need to inform the monitor of potential receivers to manage the dissolution of the canceled LLCs that are under the Trump empire. They have to provide the independent monitor a list of all defendants and any other entities controlled or beneficially owned. Inform the monitor as to what extent any third party has ownership, partnership, or interest in any Section 130 entity. Provide Department of State records in regards to Section 130 entities 
advance notice of a number of Section 130 particulars, and the independent monitor that he has appointed is none other than Barbara S. Jones. Can you believe it? Can you believe that yet again, Barbara S. Jones is back on the case? If you're new to the show, if you haven't been with me for, I don't know, like six months, like you've only come around this summer or shortly before summer, you may not be familiar with Barbara Jones. But I've written about her several times. Barbara Jones was, that's her right there. Barbara S. Jones was the special master in the Michael Cohen case in the Rudy Giuliani raid case where Rudy Giuliani wasn't the target of a investigation. He just had evidence that they needed together. So they raided his apartment in New York and Rudy Giuliani went on TV and made a big deal about it. How they took all of his devices. They took 17 devices from me, but they wouldn't take a copy of Hunter Biden's laptop. These mean FBI, they came to my apartment and raided my apartment. It's terrible. It's an abuse of power. But really, what was going on there is that Giuliani had evidence on a number of swamp creatures, and they raided him and Victoria Tunsing's home to get that evidence, and it was all kayfabe. Giuliani's doing kayfabe with the FBI. He's pretending that they're after him. They weren't after him. Giuliani is an FBI asset and has been for decades. He's Commissioner Gordon. He's a retired Commissioner Gordon who is still an asset and still gathers evidence on bad guys. And that's what that raid was about. Barbara S. Jones was appointed as a special master in that raid. Michael Cohen. Michael Cohen got raided by the FBI, turned over a bunch of evidence. Barbara S. Jones was the special master in that case. Project Veritas. Project Veritas and James O'Keefe got raided by the FBI. Remember like six, six o'clock in the morning, James O'Keefe gets raided. They had guns. It was so scary. James O'Keefe goes on TV. He goes on Sean Hannity that night. And almost cries. He acts like a broken man. He's so disturbed that they came to his house and uh, or to his apartment and raided him. He was all all so upset about it. Remember this right here? Uh, it's like the weakest we've ever seen James O'Keefe. I'm just phone. They raided my apartment on my phone where many of my reporters notes, a lot of my sources unrelated to this story and a lot of confidential donor information to our news organization, Sean. So I, I've heard the phrase, the process is the punishment. I didn't really understand what that meant until this weekend. And, and Sean, I wouldn't wish this on any journalist. And James O'Keefe, we know he's an actor. He has been trained to be, he has been, he's taken classes and he's appeared in plays as an actor. And James O'Keefe went on Sean Hannity and pretended to be so upset about what happened to him, but really what happened to him was they came, they they raided him to get evidence, correct Iowa Trump, in regards to the Ashley Biden diary, because there were uh, some swampy people who stole that diary and conspired to sell it to various journalists or sell copies of it, and it was stolen property. And who knows what else they got from James O'Keefe. I think they also got stuff from James O'Keefe related to Pfizer. And Big Pharma, because remember, James O'Keefe had some stuff going on with uh, um, investigations into 
Pfizer, and I think maybe Moderna, but definitely Pfizer. And a couple months after they raided O'Keefe, um, the FBI released a letter to FISA, Pfizer uh, detailing that Pfizer was under investigation. So another instance of kayfabe in the, in the Project Veritas case over this raid, who was the special master? Barbara S. Jones. Barbara S. Jones, again. Another instance. Oh, come on, open up. What's going on with this link? Trump's org, new court-appointed attorney, November 17th. Retired Judge Barbara Jones was appointed uh, to be the watchdog over Trump org. Then, Seth Ducharm, defense attorney for McGonagall in both his EDNY and, uh, or no, yeah, SDNY and DC case, was Seth Ducharm. Seth Ducharm works at Bracewell. What is Bracewell? Bracewell is a law firm that both Giuliani and Barbara S. Jones worked at. What is Barbara S. Jones' history before all of this? What did she do? Um, let me see. Let me search it from here. Let me show you what Barbara S. Jones was doing before she was being appointed special masters. Well, Barbara S. Jones is a former judge in the U.S. District for the Southern District of New York focusing on corporate monitorships, compliance issues, internal investigations, and arbitrations and mediations. During her 16-year term in the U.S. District Court for the Southern District of New York, Judge Jones presided over a diverse range of cases, including accounting and securities fraud, antitrust fraud, corruption involving city contracts and federal loan programs, labor racketeering, and terrorism. In May 2010, Judge Jones was appointed to Chief Justice of the United States to serve on the seven-member judicial panel for multi-district multi litigation. Prior to that, she was nominated by Bill Clinton in 95. So, of course, we're supposed to think she's evil because Bill Clinton appointed her, but that is incorrect. Before that, she was an assistant U.S. attorney in the Southern District of New York where she served as the chief of the organized crime strike force. Um, so if you know anything about Trump and Giuliani and what they were doing in New York in the eighties and nineties, then you might be realizing right now, or maybe you already know, that it was Barbara S. Jones who was prosecuting the cases that Rudy Giuliani, Donald Trump, Trump's brother, all these other people that were members of the band were gathering evidence on all these criminals in New York and New Jersey. It's Barbara S. Jones who prosecuted those cases. So in other words, Barbara S. Jones is read in. Barbara S. Jones knows that Trump and team 
she knows about the band. She knows all of this stuff. She worked in that district prosecuting the very criminals that Rudy and Trump gathered evidence against. There was somewhere there was a list of like, uh, I found it before. There was a list of some of her prosecutions and I'm not seeing it right now. Um, I've come across it before though. It's in a previous thread I've done on her. Um, so Barbara S. Jones, this is, I had like, as always, anytime I post stuff, people are like, is this good or bad? Is this good or bad? Um, this is good. <laughs> it's so obviously good. It's so obviously good. And like, think whatever you want about Judge Engeron. Okay. Like whatever, whatever. It doesn't even matter. It doesn't even matter whether he's good, bad, evil, whatever. It doesn't matter. He just appointed a band member to oversee Trump org and all these LLCs and uh, Von Hitch over on true social. Let me go and find what he said. I posted about this on true social, of course. And uh, Von Hitch had a good comment. There we go. He said, if New York is, if, if, New York is successful in dismantling Trump's LLCs. It could be a template. Trump could, through conservative judges, expose real fraud and decimate the swamp shell game of LLCs and corporations. It looks like Trump, once again, must go first. And I agree. And I don't know what this means for all of Trump's LLCs. But the media is having a great time talking about how Trump is so corrupt and they're going to be talking about these LLCs that they hid money through and hid evaluations and all of this stuff, right? They're going to be explaining to their audience, the, the Trump hating media about Trump's LLCs and talking about how, or at least alleging a bunch of different crimes about them, right? And this is coming out right before we get into, well, not right before we had some, they came out a little bit earlier, but there were, um, Remember all of Biden's LLCs? I posted the image of it somewhere on here. Um, where? There we go. Remember all of Biden's LLCs that the investigators in the House pulled up? I just feel like this is a an appetizer to a more thorough um, unwrapping of all of these LLCs that Biden was using. And I'm also wondering if any of these LLCs that Barbara S. Jones is going to be going over are going to be ones that maybe, maybe like there could be some evidence here that is needed for um, some other cases. So we'll just see what comes out, but I think it's fun. And anytime I see Barbara S. Jones pop up, you know, it's good things. You know, good things are happening. Good things happened out of the Cohen case, out of Rudy Giuliani, out of Project Veritas, um, uh, like all this stuff. Like, <laughs> talk about no coincidences. Barbara S. Jones popping up again to to oversee um, a matter related to the band. <laughs> so much fun. All right. It, the, one last thing on Trump cases update. 
Trump has rescinded his list of authorized liaisons to the National Archives. The list did include Meadows, Cipollone, Philbin, Cash Patel, and John Solomon. And I believe Trump appointed them back in 2022 or 2021 to be his uh, liaisons, his representatives to NARA. Now it's just Todd Blanche and Evan Corcoran. And Evan Corcoran, I think, is a snake. I think he's an absolute snake. Um, he already screwed Trump over once, I believe. I mean, it's pretty obvious he did um, in the Jack Smith case. Todd Blanche, I'm impressed with, but Evan Corcoran is a snake. Um, Trump, Trump is pretty good at catching swampy lawyers, though, which is probably why Evan Corcoran is around at all. But this is, this is curious that Trump is changing this. With this letter, this is from September 19th, so it's not brand new, but <clears throat> with this letter, I designate Tom, Todd Blanche and Evan Corcoran as my representatives in all respects that pertain to access to records of my presidency. And why would Trump come up after the fact and put Evan Corcoran on this after Evan Corcoran already betrayed Trump? I mean, maybe he didn't really betray him and it just looks that way. Um, but I, I think he did. So something to this. Why make this change now? And I, what's he have here? Trump's designees to the archives help manage his records and can facilitate access. The previous list was active when NARA sought the return of records it realized had been missing in the months after President Trump's presidency ended. Yeah, we're, we're familiar with that. Okay. So this change makes me think back to what we read earlier with, um, that's the motion to dismiss. What we read earlier, the, the, uh, there you go. In the documents case where they, he wants an extension of three months and they were talking about the owners of documents. I've had them move back to DC. I think, um, I think that's what this is. This could be connected. I think NARA might be the quote unquote owners of these documents. They're not letting them get access to. And Trump pulled, pulled uh, the other people off. And he's just having Todd Blanche, who's his lawyer in the docs case, be his representative. And then Evan Corcoran, who was his lawyer. I'm not sure if they've officially parted ways. I can't remember right now. I guess they really haven't since he named him here. Um, there's something to this and it makes me think, um, it, it makes, it makes me think that the owners from this previous filing that we read are NARA, that NARA has taken some documents off the table, but we'll see. It's a, it's a curious change and there's definitely a reason for it. Let me see. I got, I need to look that up. Did he get rid of Corcoran? Let me see. This is from August 8th. This is from around the raid. Trump was being represented by Corcoran at rally then. This is February 10th. 
Evan Corcoran has been put in front of a grand jury asking about Mar-a-Lago's dock scheme. Prosecutors asked Corcoran about what had occurred up until August. Let's see, the, the Corcoran declined to answer some questions. That was February 10th. Since then, Corcoran has flipped on Trump, it seems to me anyway. Um, remember some of the filings we've read that involved... Let's see, that one's gone. Remember some of the filings you've read that involved Corcoran's descriptions of what went down around the time of the raid? It really seemed like Corcoran was trying to blame um, Christina Bob. Remember, he's the guy... Corcoran is the guy who tried to get Christina Bob to sign off on the search of Mar-a-Lago, stating that there were no more documents, classified documents there. And Christina Bob was like, I can't do that. I haven't, I haven't done the search. I can't testify to that. Um, Corcoran also went and spoke to, I swear Corcoran, um, he turned over notes and something. I'm trying to find, find it. It was this summer. He was forced to testify. I think he turned over some notes. It would help if I spelled Corcoran correctly. Good morning, Karma Patriot. Also, um, NAMC Mopar. Mermaid Miss K, good morning. It's Co. Some of my regulars, good morning. I swear he turned over some stuff that led to, that fed into a, the superseding indictment. Yeah, Liz Jen, I think it is. I think Evan Corcoran is one of the people that Trump has trapped. I think he's a swampy lawyer who joined Trump's, that like Trump had around him. Uh, okay, there's a... Okay, Justice digs into Trump attorney notes to bolster case. Justice Department prosecutors have been pouring over detailed notes from an attorney for Donald Trump on the Mar-a-Lago case to bolster their case against the president. The notes from Corcoran, who has since ceased representing Trump. Yep, okay. Yeah, he no longer... Okay, so check this out. Corcoran no longer represents Trump in the Docs case like he did, yet Trump has named him to be his representative to NARA. I wonder if this is a FU. Like he knows, he knows Corcoran is a snake and he named him his position acting like he's like, they're still in the same team when they're not. So putting him into the spotlight, Corcoran can, okay, let's see. The notes from Evan Corcoran, who has since ceased representing Trump on the matter show, he explained to Trump that a 2022 subpoena meant he could not keep any classified records with Trump wishing to fight the effort to compel the documents. Corcoran conducted a search of Mar-a-Lago last June, turning over about 40 classified documents found in a storage room, but authorities would go on to find more than 100 more such records. Despite Corcoran drafting a statement indicating all records had been turned over after a diligent search, that's the statement that he tried to get Christina Bob to sign, and she was like, no, 
I'm not going to sign that unless you put a clause in there saying that it's as far as I know, like to, to the best of my knowledge, there are any more because I haven't done the search. Prosecutors have focused on why so many records remained on the property after Corcoran's search, including the role of Walt Nada and the aide to help Trump move the boxes. People familiar with the notes spread out over 50 pages described them to two outlets. The Justice Department secured the notes after Corcoran was ordered by a judge to testify in the matter. A remarkable ruling that stripped attorney-client privilege, attorney-client communication privileges after determining Trump may have used Corcoran's legal advice in furthering a crime. Corcoran remains retained by Trump in the broader special counsel investigation. Okay. Okay. So he took him off the case, but it says he still represents him in the Jan 6 investigation in DC. Notes also provide insight into Trump and not his knowledge of Corcoran's activities. Let's see. I wonder. I feel like. I feel like he got taken off the case completely. I feel like he got removed completely from Trump's team this summer. Evan Cork, Trump, President Trump was warned by his lawyer, Evan Corcoran, that he could not retain classified dogs at Mar-a-Lago after they were subpoenaed last year. The report is based on roughly 50 pages of contemporaneous notes kept by Corcoran and described to the Guardian. Special Counsel Smith has the notes as well as a grand jury. Let's see, Corcoran himself searched a storage room at Mar-a-Lago and returned some, but as an FBI search would reveal, not all classified documents. Seems to me like Corcoran's the one who really screwed up. Outgoing Trump attorney Timothy Parlatori. Let loose on Boris Epstein. I remember that. I remember that. Um, the Halit. Never mind. I won't get into that. Interesting. Very interesting. Okay, I wanted to cover the beginning of Sam uh, Samuel Bankman Fried's trial before I end the show today. I barely have time, but let's see what I can do. Let's see if I can bring everybody up to speed on Samuel Bankman Fried's trial. So his trial started um, on October 3rd with uh, jury selection, which went by really quickly. And then uh, they got started with their first several witnesses. Here are all the people, entities, that the politicians, the SBF and FTX gave money to. And as you can see, it's Republican and Democrat. Um, now, of course, there's more Democrat here, but roughly on the, the total number of money, amount of money given, it squares out to be pretty close. Uh, they were just buying whoever they could buy. It's important to keep in mind that FTX was buying the swamp. They were buying the Uniparty. And it didn't matter what party it was. It like in some races they gave to people on both sides. They gave to the Republican and the Democrat in the same race because they were banking on whoever won being in their pocket.
The trial of Samuel Bankman Freed kicked off Tuesday in Manhattan. Jury selection took up most of the first day with opening arguments to follow on Wednesday. The former crypto billionaire is in a suit and tie in the courtroom and with a short haircut, but he is remaining in prison during the trial. Judge Lewis Cap. Lewis Kaplan addressed the 31-year-old Bankman Freed known as SBF before potential jurors arrived, telling the defendant that the decision to testify in the case is solely up to you, not your attorneys. They can't make that decision for you. It's your call. You need to understand that. Over the next several weeks, lawyers will argue two dueling narratives about how FTX, Bankman Freed's now bankrupt crypto platform, came unglued and left thousands of customers in limbo with their deposits frozen. There's a typo. SBF has pleaded not guilty, of course, to seven counts of fraud and conspiracy in connection with the collapse of FTX, a seismic event from which the entire crypto industry is still reeling. SBF has maintained his innocence since his arrest last December and has sought to shift blame toward other players in his business empire, including FTX's lawyers, as well as his former business partner and on and off ex-girlfriend Caroline Ellison. Prosecutors have cast SBF as a Bernie Madoff-like mastermind who stole from FTX's customers and lied to investors in a years-long scheme to enrich himself and his associates with the luxury real estate splurges and more than $100 million in U.S. political donations. Remember, um, I, I mentioned it on Power Hour, I believe, but last week DOJ got a huge win going into this case where they're going to be allowed to bring in all of their evidence of election um, influence and campaign finance fraud, even though they were required to drop the campaign finance fraud charge. Um, there's This whole case is still very much about campaign uh, finance and influence, and that's going to be the focus of the case they make because that's the whole reason why there was this conspiracy and the money laundering and the scam. The scam. It all existed for the purpose of buying politicians. And Samuel Bateman Freed's attorneys had naturally challenged that evidence being brought in since there wasn't a campaign finance fraud charge anymore. Um, anyway, they won. The DOJ won that battle and they're going to be allowed to bring it in. That's what this case is about, which is also why I think mainstream media, they're going to cover it. Um, but they're going to downplay that angle of it. All right. So he's, he's facing seven, seven counts, wire fraud, securities, fraud, conspiracy to commit those prosecutors allege that SBF stole billions of dollars from FTX customer funds for his own personal use and to cover huge losses incurred by Alameda research, a crypto hedge fund. He also controlled. They also say SBF defrauded investors in FTX by covering up the scheme. Prosecutors opted in June to sever five other charges that were brought after Bankman Freed's extradition from the Bahamas, where FTX was based. A separate trial is scheduled to begin on those charges in March. If convicted, he faces over 100 years. All right, so let's go to opening statements, because I, I think those will be pretty interesting to read. Shout out to Inner City Press. Matthew Russell Lee is his name. He is an awesome follow. A rare breed of journalist who actually shows up to court and reports what happens in court in Manhattan. 
um, sometimes in D.C. too. Also, he absolutely hates the U.N. <laughs> he hates the U.N. so much. Uh, <laughs> and I love that. Okay. Judge Kaplan. So we will end on Friday at 3 p.m. for Mr. Zimmer and Mr. Muriel. He's talking to uh, jurors. I wish you told us you worked the night shift. We'll see what happens. All right. Ladies and gentlemen, cons conspiracy can be explicit or implicit. To use an example. Two guys sit and say, let's rob the Chase Manhattan Bank on the corner. Then one of them takes an act. It's conspiracy, even if they rob, never rob the bank. They conspire to do so. Opening statements are like trailers of a movie. The government will go first. And Mr. Wren is the US prosecuting U.S. attorney who stands up. Thane Wren. He says... One year ago, it looked like Samuel Bankman Freed was on top of the world. He hung around with Tom Brady and Bill Clinton. That's true. Let me zoom in here a bit. He had wealth, he had power, he had influence, but it was built on lies. He was committing a massive fraud, taking billions of dollars from thousands of victims. He had started FTX. He told customers it was safe, but he was taking it and spending it. He spent it on himself and on political contributions. The customers were left with billions in losses. We are here today to hold him accountable. He started FTX in 2019. It was a website to buy and sell cryptocurrency. An exchange is supposed to make money by taking a fee, not by taking the customer's money. You may have heard of Bitcoin. It is one example of crypto. FTX customers deposited funds. How did the defendant convince them to trust him? Well, he went to D.C. The defendant told Congress that FTX did not take customer money. Before FTX, he had started Alameda Research. It made some money, but lost some. He made, hit, he made his on-and-off girlfriend the CEO of that company, but he was still calling the shots at Alameda. Alameda had secret access to FTX assets. Once Alameda had it, the defendant could spend it as he pleased. How did he do it? Well, two ways. First, customer, some, customers sometimes deposited dollars on FTX. The company would tell them it was in their accounts, but it never made it to FTX. He set up a bank account linked to Alameda. He lied to a bank to set up an Alameda bank account. Then he lied to the customers. He took billions of, dollar, billions of dollars from the customers, and they had no way to know that he was doing this. Here's the second way. He took customers' crypto. Accounts that hold crypto are called digital wallets. He gave Alameda the ability to withdraw. Um, he made sure it was written in the right computer code. He will, you will hear he didn't steal all of the money. He left some of the money in FTX and more and more customers were coming. You will also hear that FTX had various programs, for example, to lend, but defendant took the money secretly. He sold millions of dollars of stock by lying. He lied to Alameda's lenders by sending them false documents. You will hear how he spent it. He, he put it into investments to make, on, make himself richer, and he paid political donations in D.C. He gave stolen money to a nonprofit his brother controlled. But then Alameda was losing money, and the defendant doubled down. He pulled more customer money out of FTX to pay off Alameda's loans. He directed the creation of false financial statements to that effect. He told Congress, again, that FTX was not using customer money. He tweeted that, but he was lying. He only shared this with his closest friends and his girlfriend. He told them the hole that they were in was big, 
but he kept lying to get more deposits. In November 2022, Alameda's financial info leaked and was published online. Defendant tweeted, quote, FTX is fine, assets are fine. That was a lie. He told his employees to set their messages to auto-delete. On the inner cir- only the inner circle knew the truth. The hole was too big. The defendant blamed a downturn in the crypto market, but he had committed fraud. That is what the evidence in this trial will show, and you will hear it from his inner circle. His girlfriend will tell you how they stole money together. That's Caroline Ellison. He brought himself wealth, power, and influence. You will see it, and you will see that there is only one verdict. Samuel Makeman-Fried is guilty. Now, of course, this is a cliff notes of the opening statement, but I appreciate it. Now, here's what FTX or SBF's lawyers said in their opening statement. His lawyer is Mark Cohen. He says, consider it under your real world experience. Sam didn't defraud anyone. He acted in good faith. There was no theft. Sam believed that loans to Alameda were permitted. They were open and known within both companies. Sam did not steal from anyone. I want to give you context here. Crypto was not for everyone. It could go up or down. Companies could rise and fall very quickly. They'd have you think he's a cartoon villain, but Sam worked hard. He was a math nerd who didn't drink or party. He worked for a traditional firm on Wall Street. Alameda was a crypto hedge fund. It had 30 employees. It was successful. It earned billions in profits. The loans were the lender's business. Then FTX, an exchange, like the New York Stock Exchange, FTX tried to be innovative. It offered many currencies and margin loans. Working at a startup is like building a plane while flying it. They had to deal with hacking threats. As FTX grew, it had 300 employees. No CEO could be everywhere. FTX didn't have a risk officer, an issue when the storm hit. FTX sought to raise funds from investors. Nothing wrong with that. FTX had huge potential. Sure, it had business relationships with Alameda. Those were reasonable. Alameda had an account on FTX. There's nothing wrong with that. Alameda took big margin loans from FTX. There's nothing wrong with that. Alameda was a market maker. Nothing wrong with that. FTX at first didn't have a bank account to accept dollars, which in the crypto world are called fiat. So they used an Alameda account. They were told, wire the funds to Silvergate Bank in the name of Alameda. At FTX, it was the fiat entry. It was like PayPal or a credit card. But without risk management, it was not reconciled. Sam thought it could be lent out. It was reasonable. Given Sam's good faith belief, how could there be theft? Oops. I just accidentally searched Lance Stroll. That was weird. Lance Stroll is almost as retarded as Samuel Bankman fried by the way. All right. Maybe I shouldn't say that. <laughs> For some reason, Lance Stroll does remind me of Samuel Bankman fried because they both seem about to be on a... They both ride the short bus. Given Sam's good faith belief, how could there be a theft? There wasn't. It was not some grand fraudulent scheme. In 2021, he gave up his role as CEO of Alameda. He gave the job to Caroline Ellison and another, then only to her, and he stayed involved. But when the prices went down, Sam spoke to Miss Ellison and urged her to put on a hedge. She didn't do so. In 2022, from May to November, they flew into the perfect storm. 
market shocks, Bitcoin dropped by 70%, many firms failed, and Alameda was hurt. Alameda paid the lenders back, so how are they victims of fraud? He didn't create false documents. Remember the fiat account? It now had $8 to $10 billion in it. Sam reasonably believed that Alameda had stopped taking deposits meant for FTX. Things were tight and Miss Ellison had not put on the hedges. But Sam believed the companies were good. He spoke to outside investors. The CEO of Binance put out a which Binance is now in trouble too, uh, put out a tweet attacking Alameda. This triggered a run on the bank at FTX. Suddenly, billions in withdrawals. Sam didn't run. The plane was going into the very eye of the storm. Consider his state of mind. Their, their case is a hindsight case. It's not a crime to declare bankruptcy. The U.S. points to business practice, practices. You've heard about the apartments in the Bahamas because that's what a bad guy does. They were bought by FTX to attract the best and brightest. As to TV ads and celebrities, these are taken out of context. It's not a crime to try to get Tom Brady. We heard multiple times my hand wasn't keeping up, but about special privileges. Mr. Wang and Mr. Singh, who also are executives who flipped on FTX, they put they wrote the code and they put it in the code for Alameda to be a market maker. The terms of service didn't apply to fiat accounts and the margin loans. Sure, he used Slack and Signal. This case turns on three witnesses, Mr. Ellison, Mr. Wang, and Mr. Singh. Each has pled guilty. Took them a while to get to that. Now, here in the real world, they have to testify in favor of the government. At the end, we'll ask you to find Sam not guilty. So, the Cliff Notes version of the defense's opening statement uh, is that Samuel Bankman Freed was doing the best he could with incompetent people around him who messed everything up. And it's not a crime to make bad market decisions, and it's not a crime to uh, file bankruptcy, and it's not a crime to have these accounts, et cetera, et cetera. And I mean, they're right. Um, but they're very much trying to bury that there was a scheme here and make it out to be just incompetence throughout. Good luck with that. All right. First witnesses. What time is it? I have just a little bit of time. My wife is picking up the toddler today. Samuel Bankman-Fried's lawyers and federal prosecutors clashed on Wednesday in opening statements over whether the former billionaire's cryptocurrency exchange collapsed due to massive fraud by its founders or errors in business judgment. The trial kicked off with jury selection. Da, 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 da. In his opening statements on Wednesday, defense lawyer Mark Cohen portrayed the Massachusetts Institute of Technology physics graduate as a math nerd who overlooked risk management. Prosecutor Wren said Bank Bankman Freed took more than $10 billion from unsuspecting FTX customers and that he doubled down when Alameda's risk investments in cryptocurrency began to lose money in May and June of last year. All of it was built on lies. He was using his company FTX to commit fraud on a massive scale and the money he was spending to build his empire. It was money he was stealing from FTX customers. Prosecutors are expected to call three former members of Bankman Freed's inner circle. Former Alameda chief executive Caroline Ellison 
and former FTX executives Nishad Singh and Gary Wang to testify against him. All three have pleaded guilty and agreed to cooperate with prosecutors. Quote, they will give you an insider's view of how the crimes occurred, said Wren in his opening statement. Cohen suggested they may spin Bateman Freed's good faith decisions that they agreed with at the time as deceitful in hindsight. Jurors are expected to hear from Wang by the end of the week, another prosecutor, Daniel Sassoon, said in court. Earlier on Wednesday, a jury of 12 primary members and six alternates was selected from a pool of residents of Manhattan, the Bronx, and New York City's northern suburbs. The group includes a retired investment banker, a school librarian, and a train conductor. Bayman Freed's parents, Stanford Law School professors Joseph Bankman and Barbara Freed, who are the real masterminds of this entire thing, were seen arriving at the federal courthouse in Lower Manhattan on Wednesday morning. They had not attended the trial's first day. They are being sued by FTX. Once known for his casual attire, mopped up unkipped curls, Bankman Freed dressed, blah, 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 whatever. All right. FTX's Samuel Bankman Freed committed financial crimes, co-founder Gary Wang said after taking the stand late Thursday. Wang, the fourth witness called by the U.S. Department of Justice in Bankman Freed's trial, said he committed wire fraud. There we go. There's another troll. Um, said he committed wire fraud, securities fraud, and commodities fraud alongside Bankman Freed, Caroline Ellison, who ran Alameda Research, and FTX exec Nishad Singh. Quote, we gave special privileges to Alameda Research to allow it to withdraw unlimited funds from FTX and lied about it. Bankman Freed faces fraud and conspiracy charges stemming from the collapse of his crypto empire, blah, 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 blah. Wang followed Paradigm co-founder Matt Wang. Huang. That's, okay, there's Wang and then there's Huang, who testified about his company's past investments in FTX. The company invested around $278 million or so across different rounds in FTX and FTX US. He asked how Paradigm currently values the FTX equity it holds, and he said we marked it at $0. A software bug resulted that resulted from the unusual way FTX handled customer deposits, overstated how much its sister company Alameda owed the exchange's customers by $8 billion, another witness said. A key piece of the relationship was banking. In FTX's early days, customers deposited fiat by wiring money to Alameda rather than FTX directly. Former FTX developer Adam Yedidiah told the court, This unusual relationship complicated how the companies tracked debts owed to customers. Yedidiah said there was a bug in the accounting software that by June 2022 showed Alameda owed far more money than it actually did. Prosecutors zoomed in on a conversation Yedidiah and Bankman Freed had on a tennis court. And um, I was going to show you guys. Inner City Press has a photo of this. Ah, where is it? Sorry if you can hear this Benson Honey Farm candy in my mouth right now. I needed it for my throat. Sorry if you hear it clicking around on my teeth. 
uh, right here. Come on. There we go. This is the tennis court where they had this converse conversation. So, right. And this, this is like the hut or whatever that they set at. This unusual relationship complicated how the companies track debts owed to customers. Yedidiah said there was a bug in the accounting firm that told this, da, 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 da. Prosecutors zoomed in on a conversation Yedidiah and Bateman Freed had on a tennis court. Yedidiah had just patched the accounting bug in mid-June, he said, which incorrectly said Alameda owed FTX customers $16 billion. In doing so, he discovered there was still an $8 billion debt and was concerned, quote-unquote. Bateman Freed told him, quote, we were bulletproof last year, and we're not bulletproof this year. The bug fix occurred shortly after Bateman Freed met with Singh, Wang, and Ellison to discuss getting a full accounting of FTX and Alameda, said Yedidiah, who was testifying under a grant of immunity. Yedidiah told the jury he resigned from FTX after learning Alameda was using customer funds to repay creditors. Quote, I learned that Alameda Research had used customer FTX funds, uh, their deposits, to pay back its loan to creditors. So I resigned. The defense began cross-examining Yedidiah in the late morning before breaking for lunch. The judge admonished defense attorney Christopher, Christian Everdell for repeating the same question too many times. Bankman Freed walked in just before 9.30 a.m., nodding at people in the gallery, seemingly greeting them with a shy smile before searching for his parents who were seated on the right side in the second row. He fidgeted during testimony, though he worked on his laptop for, more, for much of the trial as he was, he was in previous days. Joseph Bankman, Bankman Freed's father, took notes the entire time, passing them to Bankman Freed's mother. Freed held a pen in her hand, but seemed more focused on listening to the testimony. One juror did fall asleep while Yedidai explained how deposits at FTX worked. Bankman Freed trial game steamed after on the second day after a somewhat sleepy first half of the day when prosecutors and defense asked a witness and former FTX developer about the technical details of the crypto exchange. That changed around 4 p.m. when FTX co-founder and CTO, Chief Technical Officer Gary Wang, took the stand. Wearing a wrinkled suit, prior to Wang taking the stand, there was a 15-minute break during the Bankman-Fried looked visibly irritated. Okay. Bankman-Fried's parents were also there. During the break, they went to their son seemingly in an effort to provide support. At one point, his father, Joseph Bankman, patted his mother, Barbara Freed, on the back and said something and laughed. She didn't laugh back, but continued to look toward her son. She doesn't really look like a lady who laughs very often. You know, I get the impression that she, laughter is rare for her. Probably almost never. On the stand, Wang admitted that he committed wire fraud, securities fraud, and commodities fraud. He added that Bankman freed 
Nishad Singh and Caroline Ellison were the individuals he committed the crimes with. Wang, Singh, and Ellison pleaded guilty in late December and are cooperating. Wang said that they were given, quote, special privileges from Alameda Research. The crypto trading firm, he said he and Bateman Freed started prior to launching FTX. Those privileges included getting large lines of credit, unlimited withdrawals, and being able to have negative balances. Wang said that the unlimited funds came from FTX customers. A special code was added to customer transactions that funneled the money to Alameda. He shared during his testimony that he was in charge of writing and reviewing the code. And while Bankman Free did not write the code, Wang said Bankman Free did tell him and other developers what to implement. Quote, sometimes we talked disagreements out, but in the end, it was Sam's decision. Because of these special privileges, Alameda had a $65 billion, $65 billion line of credit. Quote, normal large businesses have single to double digit lines of credit in the millions. By the time the two businesses filed for bankruptcy in mid-November 2022, Alameda had withdrawn $8 billion. These internal financial advantages were not disclosed to the public, he shared. Alameda and FTX were both started by Freed and Wang, with ownership split 90% and 10%, and then 17% equity and 65% equity, respectfully. Singh also had 5% equity of FTX, and a number of outside investors held other positions. The ownership percentages never changed, he added. At the time, both Wang and Bankman Freed were billionaires. During his time at the companies, Wang also disclosed that Alameda loaned him around $200 million to $300 million. But the money never went to his bank account, and it instead went to investments that FTX made into other companies. Let's see if there's anything more to pull. Okay. SPF's close colleagues revealed chats about money woes. Make sure this is from October 5th. Okay. Samuel Bankman Free confessed that his crypto hedge fund could have trouble covering an $8 billion debt while playing paddle tennis on a racket court similar to pickleball at a luxuriant Bahamian resort where he lived in a $35 million penthouse. That's from Yedidiah's testimony that I read earlier to you. It was a very large debt, and I wanted to know that Alameda could pay it. He said he's not bulletproof anymore. The, the former CEO of Alameda Research and his ex-girlfriend, who is now expected to be the Fed's star witness against him. It's going to be Ellison, his star witness. Okay, that's a repeat. I'm looking for any new information in this one that wasn't in the other ones, other articles. After, as pressure mounted on FTX's customers demanded to withdraw their funds, Yedidiah texted Bankman Freed a message of support. He said, I love you, Sam. I'm not going anywhere. Don't worry. Yedidiah recalled texting using the encrypted app Signal. But Yedidiah ended up resigning. <laughs> Days later. <laughs> what changed, the prosecutor asked. I learned that Alameda had used FTX customer deposits to repay its loans. It's flagrantly wrong. Bankman Freed attorney Christian Everdell tried to poke holes in the prosecution's narrative of accusing the froster of living the high life, pointing out his modest de facto uniform of a t-shirt and shorts, and that he shared the ritzy Bahamas dig 
with uh, that that house, that penthouse with nine other people. What did what did they call it? A con con um, not a concubine, not a concubine. It was a different word. I can't remember. It started with a C though. It was like concubine, but it's not concubine. It was something else, some other word. It was like a 70s swinger shack or something. This was essentially dorm living, Everdell asked Yedidiah, who went to MIT. Yeah, it was It was like a, living in a dorm, and that I was living with others, but it was not like a dorm, and that it was a luxurious $35 million penthouse. No, not a commune. Not a commune. There was a term for it that they used, like the like Samuel Bankman Freed and his people used. No, it's not a com. No, it's like concubine. Because it's it's like concubine because they were all like fucking each other. Um, it's not a common word. It's not a common word. They had a big. That's why I said a seventies swinger shack, like the B fifty two sing about in that super popular song, which is really about promiscuous sex and swingers. That everybody loves that B fifty two song, the Love Shack. But the love shack is talking about a swinger house. It's hilarious to me that people sing that song. They're singing about being swingers. Um, I can't remember what it's called. I may have just blown some people's mind who never realized that. If you've never realized that the B-52 song Love Shack is about swinging, then you you never paid attention to the lyrics. You just sang along aimlessly. <laughs> I'm going th to end this show and then I'm going to remember the word. That's, that's what's going to happen. I'm going to end this show, and I am going to remember the word. Okay. What is it? Oh, I can't remember. It's going to drive me nuts. It's going to drive me nuts. All right, folks. That's my show for today. Hope you enjoyed it. Man, I really hope I get a chance to thread later today maybe my dogs will take a nap this afternoon and the kids will too or something and i can sneak back down here and and thread about that uh that filing and the stuff about the skiff because that's it's super interesting um there's something going on there with the owners okay um folks if you like the show please hit the uh hit the thumbs up over on rumble that really helps us out over there or helps me out. And um, yeah, thank you guys. Y'all have a great weekend. If you're interested in supporting the show, the links are in my link tree, the referral links for uh, Benson's Honey Farm and uh, bootleg products. Get yourself some chili, some salsas, some salsa, uh, some honey. If you're interested in a podcast version of the show, go to justhuman.substack.com. And the podcast version is uploaded there about one to three hours after this show ends. And uh, yeah, y'all have a great week. It's been um, it's been a fun week. And I'll admit something. For those of you who stuck with the show to the very end, I'll admit something. Matt Gates is growing on me a little bit. He still annoys me. He gets under my skin. Matt Gates really does. But if you haven't noticed, 
Matt Gates. Matt Gates is the one Republican who gets me to react. Like he really makes me react before I understand. It happens all the time. And my chat, my telegram chat knows about it. And it's not that I disagree with Matt Gates on stuff. I agree with him, but he, Matt Gates produces a lot of fake news. He's, he's full of hyperbole and exaggeration and grandstanding and all of those things that drive me nuts. But he's also very effective. And that's right, Salt Muncher. That's right. That's Matt Gates' job. His job is to be boisterous and loud and obnoxious. And he is. He is just as obnoxious as his hair is. <laughs> his Lego hair. Um, but he is growing on me. And uh, yeah, I feel pretty good about what's happening with this speaker battle. I'm loving, I'm loving the fallout. I'm even, I'm even loving that it threw me off a bit. And I'm sure, as as BB said, as Barney Bright said on Devolution Power Hour, that there's going to be another time where Matt Gates does something. And uh, there's going to be more events where Matt Gates says or does something, and I'm going to react to it first before I understand it. And it's going to humble me in the after, you know, and uh, that's all right. That's all right. It's fun for, it's fun. It's a lot of fun. So y'all have a great week. Appreciate y'all very much. Remember, understanding is greater than reacting. Uh, but even I sometimes react before I understand. Uh, remember, we're not going to win every battle. But we are going to win this war. Y'all be blessed. I'll see you Sunday night. That's the wrong screen. Man, one day I'll be pro at this.